Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. Good morning. This is the third week of our sermon series called Sent Out. And as we've been going along, I hope you're taking the time to work through your sermon guide and to read the passages for each week. And while you're at it, I would encourage you to read through the entire book of Acts. It'll give you a much better context for Sunday mornings, but it is also one of the most profound things to ever read in the Bible or otherwise. Uh, You'll certainly be entertained. There's drama and politics and shipwrecks and things like that. Uh, But what you'll find as you read, and what struck me most is I was doing this to prepare, is the incredible devotion of the Apostle Paul to his work. In the midst of severe suffering, severe hardship and pain, of stoning, beatings, of imprisonment and false accusations, Paul continues to keep preaching and to keep ministering. And as you read through Acts, and story after story, it's the same thing. And as I was doing this, I couldn't shake one question. My question is why? What is it that makes Paul so devoted to his work? What was it that kept him going when it would have been so much easier to stop and to quit? past two weeks, both Alan and Ben have talked briefly about the mission of God, and that's where the answer to these two questions lies. In Acts 17, in all of Paul's ministry, really, uh, we see two things. First, Paul keeps going because he understands what the mission of God is, and he understands his place and his part in it. And second, Paul understands the incredible power of the gospel at work. I want to look at both of these this morning, but first, pray with me. Lord Jesus, thank you for the opportunity to gather together. I pray that you would give us the boldness and devotion of Paul as we go about the work you've given us to do. This morning, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. So if you have your Bible or your device, open it up, turn to Acts 17, and Paul begins his ministry in verse 2. As was his custom, Paul went to the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. So the first thing that's important to keep in mind is Paul is a Jew in the first century. So when he's referring to the scriptures, he's talking about the Old Testament. And the New Testament is not written yet, and so he's trying to use the Old Testament to look ahead. And if you spent any time uh, in the Old Testament reading through it, you know that it can be difficult in places. It's easy to get caught up in names that you can't pronounce and dates and these litanies of genealogies, all these things, and they take our focus away from the bigger picture. But here in verse 2, Paul's arguing that at its core, the scriptures, the Old Testament, is telling the unified, coherent story of God's work in history to establish his kingdom, to redeem the world through the Lord Jesus Christ. This is God's mission. And God set this plan in motion at the, excuse me, at the very beginning. And Paul doesn't say it explicitly here, but the Thessalonians, and by extension, you and I, play a key part in it. To fulfill his mission, God created a people in his image to work alongside him. You see in Genesis 1 that God creates Adam and Eve. And then he gives them a job to do. He says, go, be fruitful, 
multiply, take dominion over the earth, live with God and rule with him in his perfect kingdom. And then we know that sin comes in and it corrupts things, but the point is that God always intended to have a people for himself. And in Genesis 12, God begins building his kingdom again. He selects Abraham and his family to be his people so they can be a blessing to the nations. God's plan all along is to build his kingdom with his people and then commission his people to go out and invite others into that kingdom. Ultimately, in Jesus, God establishes his kingdom on earth. He enters into the world among his people as one of his people and with all of the shortcomings of his people to finish the work he began in Genesis. This is what Paul is pointing at using the Old Testament. And then God proceeds to send the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, which is at the beginning of the book of Acts. And that bursts the church as we know it, and it kicks off Paul's missionary journey. That's where you and I come in. And the church, this is you and I gathered here, this is all the Christians in all the world, we are the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham that all the world would be blessed through him. God always intended to have a people and to have a kingdom, and God's people play a crucial role in God's mission. We, the church, are God's instrument to establish his kingdom in the world. This is about, I don't know, 2,000 years or so worth of history, but I would submit that uh, we can't really understand Paul's missionary journeys. We can't understand this sent out series without first understanding God's mission. This is the same thing that Paul preached every time. We see it in Acts 13, Acts 17, Acts 28, and it's all through his epistles, this idea that we are part of a larger story. It was kind of Paul's version of a stump speech. And if we miss it, we gut the biblical narrative and we remove its relevance for us and for the world today. Alan asked us uh, to kick off the series if we've ever thought of ourselves as sent ones. And whether you have or not, uh, that's what we are. Because again, we are the continuation of this story. And this is the very thing that Paul understood. It's what kept him going. He understood that God had given him a mission and he gives all of his people a mission. And if we want to fulfill our mission well, we have to understand what our mission is. Now ours is the same as Paul's, and it's the same he gave to the Thessalonians. It is that we are God's sent ones, commissioned to go into the world, to work with God, to build his kingdom. You think about it, you and I are sitting in this room right now because Paul and Timothy and Silas and all of the other apostles took this call seriously. They understood the mission, and they went and they did it. The church, those of us who've heard the gospel, who've been transformed by it, those of us who are sustained by it, we are God's primary means of fulfilling his mission to establish his kingdom. This we do by proclaiming the powerful gospel. And this is the second thing that Paul understands. Here at Redeemer, we we proclaim the gospel uh, in word and deed. We preach, of course, but we also work for justice and we care for creation in the farm and we feed the hungry at our free farmer's market we serve the poor and the oppressed, and we sing, and we pray, and we take the Eucharist. And all of these things are evidence of God's kingdom at work on the earth. They all bear witness to the gospel. But the key question is, what is the gospel exactly? Um, if you're unfamiliar, the word gospel simply means good news. And the good news that Paul preached and the good news that we preach is that Jesus Christ is Lord. Through his death and his resurrection, Jesus defeated sin and death and established himself as ruler over God's kingdom on earth. 
you've been around the church for any amount of time, this might seem a little silly. Uh, and even if you haven't been around the church, you're probably familiar with what we're talking about, especially here in the South, kind of in the buckle of the Bible belt, right? Um, you might not you know, get a bullseye, but you're probably going to hit the target when we talk about the gospel and what that means. And that was similar for the Thessalonians. In verse 2, we read again that Paul goes to the synagogue to preach. At the synagogue, that means he's preaching to the Jews. And the Jews, better than anyone, knew the story of God, and they knew their place in it because they are his people. They were literally the descendants of Abraham. And so this is actually their story. But Paul's also preaching to Gentiles in Thessalonica. Gentiles, of course, were not Jews, so they may not have been as intimately connected to the story, but they certainly would have known bits and pieces. In this passage, we read later that the city officials accuse Paul and his companions of causing social upheaval. And what they say is this. They say, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. So news is spread, and they've heard about this. They've heard about Paul and these guys, and they've heard that if these people come, it might cause some problems in our town. They're familiar enough with the message to at least know that. But despite this, despite the fact that both the Jews and the Gentiles in Thessalonica are familiar with the message, Luke, who's writing the book of Acts, makes a special mention of the particular gospel that Paul preaches. Again, in verse 2 and 3, he tells us that Paul reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. The Jesus I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ, Paul says. He is the Messiah. He is the ruler of the kingdom. He is the final piece of the story. And this is the gospel we proclaim. Luke tells us all of this because we have to get this message right if we want to fulfill our part in the mission of God. Thessalonica in the first city, you could think of it like Washington, D.C. It was the capital of the state of Macedonia, and that made it a powerful city where important political decisions were made. It was also a port city, and it was a major stop on an ancient land trade route, and that made it a wealthy city. Most importantly, though, Thessalonica was a free city, and this was rare in the ancient world, but it meant that the emperor of Rome had given Thessalonica special authority to govern itself. Thessalonica could create its own laws, it could even make its own currency, and it wasn't completely subject to the Roman Empire. And this made Thessalonica a prestigious city. But as you're probably aware, with wealth and with power and with prestige come a lot of competing false gospels that are searching for our attention. False gospels that fly in the face of the true gospel that Paul preaches in Acts 17. And these false gospels are going to do one of two things when you encounter them. One, they'll put the impetus on you and I for salvation. They'll make you and I the ones that have to do the work to realize whatever salvation they're trying to offer. Consider something like prosperity gospel. It says, name it and claim it. It says, God wants to give you your best life now. It says that you can measure your faithfulness by the amount of money that God gives you and the blessings that he blesses you with. Essentially, it's saying if you work harder and you give more and you do better, then God will bless you more. Or false gospels make us the only focus of salvation. Whatever salvation these false gospels offer, it's for our sake only. Consider the individualism that's rampant in our culture, right? Speak your truth, put yourself first, do what's right for you over anything else, and you'll be fulfilled. Or consider romantic love. It tells you to do everything you can to find that one right person, and you'll be complete. 
think about politics, you vote for this person or you support that party, then you'll be safe. And this is crucial for our own lives and for the lives of those that we minister to. If we want to fulfill our role in God's mission, we have to see through those false gospels and get the message right. It sounds simple, but the difficult part is that these false gospels are compelling. They're so compelling for us. But the true gospel says the exact opposite of these false gospels. The true gospel, what Paul's preaching here, what we are called to preach, is that Jesus Christ died, he rose again, and he defeated sin and death. Our sin and our shortcomings are put on his shoulders, and he redeemed them. That is something that you and I cannot do. We cannot save ourselves. By confessing that Jesus is Lord, by saying that someone else is Lord and not us, we are confessing that we need a Lord in our lives, and we are not it. We confess that we've been living in a different kingdom, and that kingdom cannot save us. We are wholly reliant on God and Jesus to redeem us and bring us back into God's kingdom. Likewise, the true gospel is never for you and I only, but it's for you and for I and for the sake of others. Later in the New Testament, Paul writes a letter to the church in Corinth, and he says this. He says, though I am free and belong to no one, I've made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I've become all things to all people so that by all possible means, I might save some. The gospel works in us that we might share that gospel with others or that God might save them as well. This is a revolutionary message. Think about it. From every side, we are told that we are supposed to rule our own kingdom. Everything we read, everything we watch, we hear, we see on TV, it tells us that we are at the center of our own universe, but that is false. The power of the true gospel is that it removes us from the center of our own kingdoms, and it puts Jesus there instead. We proclaim that Jesus is Lord, and if that's the case, then everything is different. In Jesus, we are no longer subject to sin and death because Jesus defeated sin and death. Because of the resurrection, sin and death have lost dominion over us. And because they've lost dominion, we have a profound hope in Jesus. The true and powerful gospel offers a completely different way to live. When we encounter it, it disrupts our lives. It transforms us. It gives us the freedom and the power to live in the kingdom of God and to invite others into that life. Frankly, if we preach any other gospel, we're selling snake oil to a broken, sinful, and hurting world. If we do not offer a different kingdom, a different way to live, then our gospel is useless and our gospel is deadly. But if you've empower, encountered the powerful and true gospel, you know that it is incredibly powerful. Through Paul's preaching, the Thessalonians do encounter it, and we see it at work in three ways. First, the gospel disrupts. So if you look at verse 5, the gospel starts a riot among the Jews, and that spreads to the rest of the city in verses 6 through 8. What's happening is that people are believing Paul's gospel message. They've heard of this new king and this new kingdom, and they say, yes, that's it. And they're doing this in significant numbers. We read that not only Jews, but God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women 
have come to believe the gospel. So we see all ethnic groups, all social classes involved, and ultimately this new group of Christians are charged with treason. And this is something maybe a little surprising to us. We don't hear about treason uh, in our lives too often, but this isn't the first time that this has happened. Part of the reason that Jesus ended up on the cross originally is because he was claiming to be a king as opposed to Caesar. And in verse 7, Paul and the new believers are accused of the exact same thing. They defy Caesar's decrees, and they claim that there is another king, and that that king is Jesus. And this does a couple of things. First, it disparages Caesar, but more importantly, it calls into question the very foundations of life as the people in Thessalonica know it. In the ancient world, Caesar was, it meant son of God. He possessed the ultimate power to determine nearly every detail of life in the Roman Empire. And so claiming that there's a different Caesar, a different king, that there's a different son of God undercuts his power. And that's a dangerous thing to do. When we preach the gospel, we proclaim that the powers and the rulers and the systems and the structures of this world are illegitimate. And we live according to a different authority. People who hold power don't like to have their power for challenge for fear of losing it. But that's exactly what our gospel does. Theologian Stanley Hauerwas puts it this way. He says, the cross is not a sign of the church's quiet, suffering submission to the powers that be, but rather the church's revolutionary participation in the victory of Christ over those powers. The cross is not a symbol for general human suffering and oppression. Rather, the cross is a sign of what happens when one takes God account, God's account of reality more seriously than Caesar's. This, of course, is a political message. We're talking about kings and we're talking about rulers, but don't let yourselves off the hook. This is also an incredibly personal message. We long to be our own Caesars, to rule over our own lives, to determine every detail as we see fit. But we proclaim that Jesus is Lord over our lives and not us. When we take God's reality seriously, it disrupts the world but it also disrupts our individual lives and that leads to incredible transformation. And that's the second way we see the gospel at work in Acts 17. Again, we know that a significant number of people became Christians at Thessalonica after Paul's preaching, but the story ends kind of abruptly. This riot starts and it picks up steam and Paul and his companions have to go into hiding and they sneak out of the city at night. And effectively, their ministry in Thessalonica ends. Thankfully for us, we have a little bit more to the story. A few books later in your Bible, you come to First and Second Thessalonians, and these are two letters that Paul writes back to this church that he founds in Acts 17. Uh, so we know that some of the believers in Thessalonica were Jews, but the text hints that many more were also religious Greeks or devout Greeks, your text might say. These were Gentiles who feared God, and they were sympathetic to the Jewish way of life, but they were not full converts. And the fact is that the Greek way of life, sort of Roman Empire, Greek people in Thessalonica, their way of life was vastly different from the Jewish way of life. You think in the Old Testament, the laws, the commands, all the things that Jewish people had to keep. It's a lot like uh, our own American culture and way of life. It's the same thing. It's vastly different from life and culture in the kingdom of God. And so Paul's writing 1 Thessalonians back to them to encourage them in a major transition from the way they used to live the way to live in God's kingdom. You can't discount the significant transformation that did have to take place with the Jewish believers either. 
For hundreds of years, the Jews had been waiting for the Messiah. They'd even lived through several people that came along and claimed to be the Messiah, but turned out to be false. And every time, uh, it ended badly for them. So for them to accept this message about Jesus, another person claiming to be the Messiah, they were putting a lot on the line. They'd been down this road, and again, it hadn't worked out well. But this time, a couple of things are different. We see two really important things happen in 1 Thessalonians. First, the believers there receive Paul's message. They believe it. They accept their charge to share the gospel and God's plan for salvation. In chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, we read that the Thessalonians became imitators of us, of Paul and his companions, and of the Lord. In spite of severe suffering, you welcomed the message with joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. I think for the Thessalonian church, while this is really good news, uh, this is kind of like the spiritual high. You might have experienced this if you've gone to a Christian conference or camp or maybe a booyah. While you're there, there's worship, there's preaching, there's teaching, and you come alive, right? You feel the Holy Spirit at work, and you're on fire for the Lord. Then you come home, and day by day, that fire starts to fade out. If you add in the persecution that the Thessalonian Christians were facing, you can imagine that their fire might have died a little bit quicker. But uh, we actually get a report in chapter 3, verses 6 to 10, that the Thessalonian church is held strong. So between the time that Paul and his companions leave, they send Timothy back to check on this church and make sure that they're doing all right. And Timothy brings this great, uh, this great report that the Thessalonians, in fact, have remained faithful despite severe persecution. This is really great news, but if you're like me at this point, you're thinking this, great. I can expect the gospel to transform my life, but I am painfully aware of my own shortcomings. So what happens when I inevitably mess up? What happens when the pressures of this life and the works of the enemy are too much? My faith falters. I'm not sure I can hold strong like the Thessalonians. If that's you and you're like me, you certainly aren't alone. Paul writes a second letter to the Thessalonians, and he partly addresses those very questions. And the answer gives us incredible hope. In 2 Thessalonians 13, he writes this. He says, We ought always to thank God for you, brothers loved by the Lord, because from the beginning, God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel, that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. The point here is that God will not leave us to our own devices. When we confess that Jesus is Lord, we confess that we need a Savior. God will transform us through the gospel, and he will sustain us through the gospel. This is the third way we see the gospel at work, and this point is crucial. If you only remember one thing this morning, remember this. It's that you and I have no power, that we will fail, and we are completely unable to save ourselves when we do. But God is mighty to save. Jesus died, but he rose again, and he defeated death. The work is finished, the kingdom is here, it is established, and Jesus is ruling over it. 
Brothers and sisters, God does not abandon those who trust in him. He is invested in us. He knit us together in our mother's womb, and he desired a relationship with us, so he called us. He gave us a job to do. We are his chosen instruments in his mission to establish his kingdom. We are the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. We are meant to live a kingdom life in this world and to proclaim a true and powerful gospel for Jesus is Lord. We're meant to proclaim that gospel because we are God's sent ones. Remember what happened when you first encountered the gospel. Remember Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus. Go and read it. It's this incredible transformation in his life. We don't come to church on Sundays to just sit and to consume, to check off the to-do list. We come here to encounter the gospel, to let it disrupt us, to transform us, to sustain us. Not so we can survive another week, but so we can go. If you're here and you're not a Christian, if you haven't yet professed Jesus as Lord, I pray that you might begin to see some of the cracks in whatever is ruled over your life to this point. And I pray that you would experience the kingdom of God here among these people this morning. I pray that the Christians in the room would take their mission seriously and they would invite you into this new way of life. In a few minutes, Ashley is going to dismiss us to go in peace, to love and serve the Lord. I want you to realize that's not just prayer book tradition. It is a command from our God. It is our mission. So when she says this, go, love and serve the Lord. Proclaim the true gospel to a world that desperately needs it. Paul is infinitely more eloquent than I so I'll leave you with his words to the Thessalonian church in 1 Thessalonians 5.23. He writes to them, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Amen.